So the role of the CEO is always, you're responsible for everything, period. There's no excuses. There's no delegating. Love it. You're ultimately responsible for every single part of the business. That doesn't mean you literally do everything with your hands. So you have to decide where to invest your time and your energies. Where do you have a comparative advantage and what's most important asymmetrically create upside or downside? So you want always filtering what you do, but fundamentally there are no excuses. Welcome to season two of Limited Supply, the place for refreshingly real takes on what D2C is really like. We're your hosts, Nick and Moyes. Let's get into it and start making money. Growing your business is hard, but Triple Whale is all about scaling your Shopify store to the moon and doing it profitably. Okay, what I'm supposed to read is is it says use promo code SUPPLY15 to get 15% off when you sign up for Triple Whale at triplewhale.com. But I really mean DM me on Twitter and I will get you 20%. I'm going to go fight the CEO and I'm going to be like, get 20% off of these guys. So just DM me and I'll get you 20%. All right, everybody. We are back. A season two special. The man himself, Keith. The Barry's legend. The PayPal legend. The Square legend. The Open Store legend. The Open Door legend. How are you doing, Keith? Great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm still a little winded from that Barry's class. Ready to do another? Let's go after this. Perfect. And Moise is joining us here from Texas. What's hey up, Moise? First uh, virtual podcast that we're recording, so I hope it goes well. Awesome. Uh, all right, should we jump into it? Yeah, I'd love to. Keith, super excited that you're on. Nick and I usually don't have guests on. We've only had one guest in the past named Harley, who is a president at Shopify. Uh, you're the second guest on, just generally because we feel like people don't bring a ton of honesty to podcasts. But I feel like you and I, I feel like that's not going to be the case with you. So super excited that you're here. I'll try to give you real views. I appreciate that. Just before we started recording, I mentioned that I met you once back when you were at Slide. You know, you've been at PayPal, Square, Open Store, Founders Fund, Kosla. Can you tell us how you got into e-commerce? Like uh, all of those things are not e-commerce. How did you get into Open Store? Yeah, no particular reason. You named a fair variety of companies, PayPal, Square, LinkedIn, I've been involved in companies like Yelp. There's no pattern. Um, The only thing that really appeals to me is interesting, ambitious problems and interesting, ambitious people. Put the combination of the two together and I'm interested, regardless of what it is, of of funded things in genomic sequencing, I funded things in healthcare, I funded an enterprise software company or two, which is not my favorite thing to do. Obviously, Open Door is a commerce transactional engine, but I don't have any religious views about what interests me other than ambitious, talented people. What is it about some of the crazy ideas that makes you want to throw a check in? And how much diligence do you do? Because I saw a tweet the other day where you said, if you see a good idea, you don't even ask, you just throw a check. I generally talk about my criteria for investing is that about half of my VC friends should think my investment's ridiculous and laugh. That's how I know I'm taking enough risk or I'm seeing things that other people are missing. And it's a good filter because you can usually tell whether your friends would laugh at you. Uh, So it works pretty well as a proxy. Diligence does vary by stage of company. Typically, I prefer to be investing as early as possible, keynote deck and team. So obviously limited to a keynote deck and team, there's not that much diligence you can do. Series A, there's a little bit more diligence. There may be some product metrics. There's probably not financial metrics typically. So really, if you're an early stage investor, the idea of doing significant diligence is silly anyway. But 
the value proposition I bring as an investor and the way I like to compete with the rest of the world of investors and VCs across the planet is by assessing the talent and the abilities of founders. So that's the only thing I really care about. So once I've made a decision about the quality and caliber of the founders, everything else is just extraneous. So the tweet I talked about was, there was a time back in my day at Coastal Ventures where we were pitched by a very accomplished founder who is clearly first rate. He actually reminded me a bit of a clone of Max Levchin. So there was no doubt about his ability as a founder, but the technical uh, challenges he was confronting were something way outside my you know sort of realm of expertise. And I had partners at KV who knew a lot more about AI-oriented X, Y, or Z, and they were pretty dubious and skeptical. So I was hesitating on investing for about two weeks, kept going back and forth and thinking about it, chewing on it. And my chief of staff at the time, uh, Delian, walked into my office one day after a Monday partner meeting and said, what the hell are you doing? Like, if I've learned anything from you in like the last 15 months is that if you find a world-class founder in a big opportunity, write a check. So stop asking questions. I was like, you know what? You're right. Give him a term sheet right now. So, you know, I forgot my own principles, which was the point of my tweet that it's easy to get distracted with a lot of noise versus like my only job is to figure out whether this person is likely to be a world-class founder. You know, you mentioned uh, talking about uh, working for really ambitious projects and really ambitious people. You're probably one of the uh, few people who's gotten to get to know Elon and Jack Dorsey in a personal way at different businesses. I remember when I was in law school, Cass Sunstein once told a story about Barack Obama right after the election in 2009. And the entire class, it was an admin law class, the entire class was typing and like was not paying attention at all to Cass Sunstein. And as soon as he mentioned Barack Obama, the room went silent. There was nobody talk, typing on their keyboard any longer. And they were like, what is this story going to be like? Can you tell us a crazy story about Elon Musk and a crazy story about Jack Dorsey? Well, I didn't work that closely with Elon. Elon had already been displaced to CEO of PayPal, but was still on the board of PayPal. So really only in conjunction with board matters, um, like things that would be elevated to the board level that I get to know him. Sure. I did work with him a little bit when he was starting SpaceX. I thought about joining SpaceX and actually contemplated moving down to Southern California back in 2003, but that was a, a very long time ago. Uh, Jack, obviously, I worked with very closely, but I don't think there's any crazy stories. I think Jack has an amazing set of abilities. The, the most distinguished thing about Jack is he is a world-class business mind, technical mind and design mind. And that Venn diagram overlap is like literally rounds to zero in the world. Uh, so that's why Jack's been so successful. So typically people have different characteristics that allow them to compete. And once they isolate that, they want to double down on that as much as possible. So for example, Max Levchin, I remember when I first met with him in December of 2000. So after I joined PayPal about a month or two in, I presented something to him. And I remember Reed Hoffman giving me this advice going into the meeting saying, Max is about one of three people in Silicon Valley that is a first-rate business mind and a first-rate technical mind. So be careful. <laughs> and like, don't think, don't think you're going to be like sharper, smarter on the business side than he is. But he's basically like, there aren't people in Silicon Valley, and this is only a couple months in my Silicon Valley career, there aren't people like him. And this is when Max was 23, and Reed Hoffman knew it right then and was able to articulate exactly why Max was going to be so successful. So you can pick up on these traits very early in people's career. It was the number one lesson from that. And then B, when you find those people like Max, keep working with them. So I went to work with him a slide as you alluded to, and then, uh, you know, help fund. I led the first institutional round for a firm and I'm still on the board of directors of a firm. How many unicorns have you funded? I don't even know. Probably depends whether you include like angel investments and venture 20 to 30, 40. I, I mean, I actually can't track. It depends whether you also need liquidity or you believe these paper markups over the last three right. years. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that's why it's hard to answer. Yeah. 
Can you talk about your management style at some of these companies? Like, how do you prefer to lead companies, or um, how do you set up your structure when you when you were an executive at some of these companies? It's changed over the years, but the most important thing I learned in management is hire amazing people, and then you don't have to learn how to manage very well. <laughs> it's like it's like basketball or baseball or whatever. Is it something you enjoy? Like, do you enjoy the the act of managing people, or you'd rather hire a team to manage the team, and you'd rather do your own thing? No, I, I enjoy recruiting, assessing, and promoting people and working with osmosis to teach. But management qual management is boring and not that valuable. Truthfully, this is a lesson from PayPal. P- Peter Thiel taught me this lesson actually the first week I worked at PayPal, which was November of 2000. We went for a jog around the Stanford campus. And he asked me you know, sort of what I thought of the company. And I gave him some feedback. And he articulated two theories of the world that were pretty critical for the rest of my career. One was you never want general management ability. You want to promote people based upon their discipline and their craft, excellence at their discipline, excellence at the crop. So the best engineer becomes the VP of engineering. The best designer leads the design team, et cetera. And so I strongly believe that when you're trying to solve problems, you want people who are extraordinary. And that's what leads to these proverbial 10X breakthroughs. So I I really enjoy working with 10X people and work pretty closely with them. Like I will brainstorm, riff, remix, um, lots of ideas all the time. I will wake up at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., or 5 a.m. with a, a riff on a conversation I had that day and mm-hmm. hopefully a good idea and a good solution. So I definitely enjoy that. But the process of actual management is mostly like an error correction model. So Netflix has this famous culture deck, you know, from a decade plus ago. When they talk about it, most parts of management, most rules and processes are designed to prevent mistakes. I really don't want to be in the mistake prevention business. I want to be in the asymmetric value creation business. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I've always been taught there's like the the CEM, which is clarity, equipment, and motivation. Is there any type of rule you follow around management there? Well, clarity is critical. So one of the things I believe in is like transparency. So if you want people to make decisions, you need to be clear about what the goals are and how well you're doing. And you want to broadcast that information to literally everybody in the company as often as you can. So Jack started, Jack Dorsey started at Square. This process, which I really like, is we would send notes from every meeting to everybody in the company so everybody had more context. You want dashboards throughout the office, artic- you know, clearly articulating how well you're doing against your core goals. You want to draft a business equation that actually explains how all the parts, the moving parts of the business connect. And you want to teach this down to the customer support level. So one of the things I also believe in is weekly company meetings. We did this at Square. They were very well, uh, let's say, prepared where part of the goal was to teach everybody in the company so that everybody's on the same page and could understand how everything's everything linked. If you want people to make the same decisions you would as CEO or COO or CRO, you need to have ensure everybody understands the same context, same information, or they're obviously going to make subpar decisions. So clarity is critical. Uh, motivation, there's an uh, high output management is one of my favorite sort of books about how do you learn to run a high growth company. Uh, Andy Grove talks about, founder of Intel, talks about how do you distinguish whether you have a capability gap or motivation gap. And the basic question is, if this person's life depended on it, the acid test is, if this person's life depended on it, could he or she do this? And if the answer is yes, then you have a motivational problem. If the answer is no, then you have a capability and skill problem. Mm-hmm. And so the solution to a motivational problem is different than the, the, the solution or lack thereof to a skill or capability gap. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Let's pivot a little bit to e-commerce and open store. Keith, just for a little bit of background, uh, Nick and I have just been in e-commerce for the last, uh, for me, for a decade. Nick is barely a decade old, so uh, for for him. First, how did you, you know, open store was a collaboration, as I understand it, between you and the guys at Atomic. 
or Jack at least, uh, tell me a little bit about how that started and then what your role at OpenStore is today. Sure. So OpenStore provides instant liquidity to Longtail Shopify owners. So let's say sure. Longtail, one to $10 million GMV is our target market. So these people start a business, it does pretty well, but they may not want to run the business forever. They may confront challenges, they may have other things in their lives, they may have other goals. And we pro we're the only company really that provides liquidity to that market, Shopify and sub $10 million GMV. And then we stitch these businesses together into a large, horizontally broad e-commerce sure. e platform with the goal of creating the first horizontally broad platform in the United States since the 1990s. So that's the goal. That's what we do. We give... If people link their data, we will give them an offer within 24 hours and they can decide to accept. We buy the businesses and then we have to run, absorb and run the businesses. So I serve as CEO. The idea behind the company was actually Jack Abraham. So in December of 2020, after I moved to Miami, uh, Jack had me over his house for breakfast uh, the day before Christmas. And he said, I've got this great idea. And I said, sure, I'm listening. And about 30 seconds in, maybe three minutes in, somewhere between there, I was convinced it was a really good idea. So obviously Shopify has been a massive success over the last 15 years. It's the greatest sort of untold story back then, especially because the market cap was like 4X what it currently is. And kind of under the radar, like most people miss the value of shop all along the way. But Jack was paying attention. And he said, there's all these really small businesses on Shopify and they're kind of stuck. They either have suboptimal access to capital. Let's say they know they should spend more on customer acquisition. They just don't have the money. They have to wait for the money from a sale to hit their bank account and decide what to do. They don't have access to cutting edge technology. They don't have all the modern techniques of like, quote unquote, Silicon Valley. So there's all these limitations. They don't have economies of scale. Think shipping costs. So all of these things can be improved and we can provide them instant liquidity. And as he, as he started talking about the idea, yeah, he said, Absolutely, that resonates with me. It's a great idea. It should definitely work. And there's so many moving pieces. I like this, but it's also the combination of stuff I've done before, which is long tail micro merchant acquisition, SMB micro merchant acquisition, think PayPal Square, et cetera, or Yelp even. And then secondly, underwriting an asset, underwriting a business, valuing a business sure. sight unseen is something obviously I've done a few times actually before, oh, most right. notably Open Door, but also at Square in some subtle ways. So I was like, fundamentally, I'm in, I want to do this, and I think I'll do it myself. So I'm currently serving as CEO of the company. <laughs> we have 103 employees going to 110 um, imminently, all based in Miami. Wow. What does CEO here mean? Like, are you sort of like, hey, you know, there's different levels of CEO, particularly when you're working with so many different businesses, like someone like you would probably is, is the role of a CEO to hire and to fundraise? Or is the role of a CEO here to also sort of get into the weeds and be like, what does our underwriting look like? Uh, is that good? Or is that not good? Should we change our target demographic of the type of businesses that we want to buy? What is the role of a CEO here? So the role of the CEO is always you're responsible for everything, period. There's no excuses. There's no delegating. Love it. You're ultimately responsible for every single part of the business. That doesn't mean you literally do everything with your hands. So you have to decide where to invest your time and your energies. Where do you have a comparative advantage and what's most important asymmetrically create upside or downside? So you want always filtering what you do. But fundamentally, there are no excuses. Like fundraising is part of the responsibility of the team, editing the team, the seams between different parts of the organization, the strategy, 
fixing, if you don't like the model, fixing the model, figuring out what's wrong with the model. Why is it people? Is it process? Is it data, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very refreshing and very challenging because it's always something different every day. So before we get into talking about some of the businesses you've bought, how is this structured? Because I just bought an e-commerce business. The ops part is a nightmare. You know, dealing with the customers is one thing. Customer service is another nightmare center. Marketing is another piece. How do you structure this 110 people? So we have a team generically referred to as operations after we absorb and integrate the business that has a marketing function, which has customer acquisition and retention components to it. We have a procurement and uh demand forecasting function. We have a customer support function. So basically functional units across all of the brands we've acquired. And how frequently are you acquiring some of these Shopify brands? Uh, This quarter, so Q4, we'd like to do more than one a week. Yep. Uh, That's the real goal. Last quarter, we were just slightly below that. Is there a sales team associated with it, I guess? No. um, When I sold my business, I sold it to P&G. There's no sales team. Where's the deal flow coming from? It's all inbound? Well, we do do paid acquisition marketing, but some of it's inbound. Um, we get a lot of organic inbound. Um, you know, for example, people read about Open Store and they're like, "Yeah, I run a Shopify business. That'd be great." And then we do paid acquisition through different channels, experimentally trying different yeah. things. But no sales team going out calling people. No, saying, like, no hey, sales uh, team. Do you want to sell your business to us? First of all, these businesses are pretty small, sort of by definition. So sales tends to work better with larger businesses. B, I have a significant long-standing aversion to sales teams. So I kind of throw salespeople at problems after I've tried everything else in the world. Yeah. Where does that come from? Uh, well, have you ever managed sales teams? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Usually most <laughs> people know. Um, so, you know, it's just a different skill set. It is very difficult to scale. It's very unpredictable. It has a different culture than like typically engineering product and design. Mm-hmm. So I prefer not to mix and match unless I have to. Yeah. It's a little less like productized. Yeah, and, other and, teams. and it becomes less mathematical. Right. When you do marketing, you can use statistics. When you start using high-end sales anyway, you're subject to the whims of one or two closes per quarter, and they all come in the last week. So you can't really run the business with math or statistics, which is how I was taught to run businesses. And what's the sweet spot of uh, the perfect e-commerce business to acquire from maybe even purchases you've made that didn't work out or purchases you've made? We're pretty horizontally broad. So we have some exclusion criteria, but if a direct-to-consumer business with more than a majority of sales on Shopify targeting US customers is somewhere between, call it the very low end of 500K and the high end about $10 million of sales, that's right in the sweet spot, ideally with about a year of operating history. Yeah. What are the exclusions? You said there are some exclusions that would uh, get you to not buy a business. Is it category? Is it profitability? Is it team? Is it IP? What What are the exclusions? The exclusions are really based on things that you'd probably guess, like content policies you see all across like the internet, like firearms or something like that. CBD? Something like that. It's yeah. like le- legal slash policy. Yeah. Makes sense. What's the most you've paid for a business? A few million dollars. And what's the least? Low hundreds of thousands. Yeah. And is it based on EBITDA or inventory? Like how do you generate, if there was a general equation? We have a very unique proprietary equation that I sort of literally came up with at 3 a.m. in the morning. It's actually a very true story. This is right um, before Barry's? I, yeah, I do have like, <laughs> I actually have a notepad that I sit next uh, on my nightstand because I occasionally have these epiphanies at three or four in the morning. And the only way I can fall back asleep is to scribble it really fast and hope that um, it allows my brain to turn off. Uh, so I actually had one of those three AMs about like how to value the business, which we've been using. We do value inventory separately. 
So we combine the value of what we think the business is worth as a business, as an operating business, and then on hand inventory and stitch the two together and make an offer to the owner. Got it. And what percentage of the offers that you give turn into giving the 20% and what percentage of those end up becoming businesses you buy? We basically make offers to what we call GMV qualified businesses. So above 500K, let's say, plus or minus, to more than a majority. And then roughly, depends on the month and the quarter, somewhere between 15 and 25% of them like are interested in our offer mm-hmm. and click accept, I want to do this. And once they accept that, it's basically... We have a very quick truncated diligence process. When I say very quick, sub two weeks, sometimes it's days. So the diligence process was built from the ground up to be able to do one a day. We don't, we're not currently closing one a day, yeah. but we built everything so that we could streamline the diligence process. So we don't ask a lot of extraneous questions. We, we simplify to the things we only really need to verify, and then we can close as quickly as possible. And knowing your your brain is very productized is this all done through integrations and like ai or is this done by people asking the founders questions how does that process it's, it's work it's a mix um like so one of the biggest lessons from paypal that made actually max levchin really famous he was on the cover of wired magazine for pioneering the combination of math and people so the things that humans and human brains are really proficient and excellent at and there's things that math is much better or ai if you like the fancy version are much better at and the systems that combine the two in some ratio are ideal so this is how we solve the fraud problem at paypal how we built the fraud engine at square this is how we do underwriting at open door is a light interaction you call it one to five, maybe 10% of humans and 90% plus of machines. And then over time, you're dialing up the percentage that's done with math and dialing down the percentage done by human labor. Going back to the businesses, uh, are there categories that you like uh, when you're buying a business? So you said, you know, north of 500K in GMV, less than $10 million. Are you category agnostic or do you care? And that, like, you know, obviously there's exclusions like the firearms you mentioned, but does it matter if they're selling mattresses versus deodorant? Um, nope. And then does it matter if most of their sales are Shopify versus Amazon? We're horizontally broad. So we have apparel. I think right now our apparel is probably running at about low 40%, which is very typical for the Shopify ecosystem. We have things you say like- low 40%, do you mean low 40%, 40% of our businesses? 40% of our brands are selling apparel of some type. Targeting maybe different demographic. We might have men's apparel, women's apparel, children's apparel. We have some furniture. We have like a really cute sofa for kids called Lazy Something. Uh, We have drones. So we have consumer electronics. So we're intentionally horizontal. I would like to mirror the entire shop ecosystem identically if we can. What's the goal with going horizontal versus if you go 80% apparel, you can own that supply chain or maybe build your own supply chain. If you go 80% beauty, you could build your own supply chain there. What's the point of going horizontal? It's a little bit of a Keithism, which is borrowed from an Elonism, which is if you're going to build an ambitious business, it's almost as hard to build a $100 billion business as a $1 billion business. So you might as well aim as ambitiously as possible. So we started with the goal is we want to be larger than Shopify, comparable to Amazon retail. So the only way to do that is to be horizontal. And I think it's difficult if you start with a vertical orientation to expand. There are examples in the world. Facebook clearly is the most stark contrast. Started with college, went Mm -hmm. high school, then went broad. So it's possible, but I generally think that's a bad strategy. You know, you talked about apparel a moment ago, uh, which I thought was really interesting that 40% of your businesses sold apparel because generally, you know, you're buying these businesses from operators and mom and pops who are thinking about design. You know, you're buying it from a mother who's like creating clothes for babies and thinking about, okay, you know what? We need a pumpkin onesie because this is going to be really cute for Halloween. 
Are there people on your team doing that? I'll give you an example is my parents used to own gas stations and I would work there and, you know, we could run this mom and pop gas station because it was small and we knew the customers and we knew like what they cared about and how to, uh, you know, stock the store. But if a big racetrack came in or a quick trip came in or flying Jays came in, they wouldn't understand the local element of this. They're, they're great on the highway when you have a big truck stop and all you need is gasoline in now, but they're not good for the local environment. How do you guys think about creating onesies that are pumpkins. <laughs> we actually do have a really cute onesies brand for children. So if anybody needs holiday gifts for their kids, I highly yeah. recommend checking Great. out Open Store. What's the but, brand? <laughs> I don't forget the name of it. It's a, uh, I should actually buy it because I have two kids that are pretty much right the same age. But uh, the way we think about it is first, we can use data to separate out and disambiguate what's proprietary, what's unique and very local in, in sort of your yeah. framework. And what's basically a standard e-commerce business. We don't aspire to ship super creative new ideas unless it's predicated on data. Now, with enough consumers and enough transactions, you do get pretty insightful data about what products are likely to work that aren't currently being, uh, let's say, built, shipped, etc. A little bit like how Netflix started repackaging other people's content. And then a decade plus later had enough data about what consumers would watch, what they were searching for, that with an advantage, with a strategic advantage, they could actually create original content. So that's how we think about it. It's just like the Netflix formulation. So is this all the groundwork for OpenStore to launch its own set of brands eventually? I don't know if we'll directly launch our own set of brands, but I could see being more excited about acquiring particular businesses and being willing to pay more even because of consumer data. Yeah. Now, we may have to, if there's a gap that nobody's producing something and we see that consumers badly want X and would retain you know, in some unique and differential way, we absolutely could produce products. We do produce some products. Like, so for example, one of our favorite brands is this brand for men called Jack Archer. It's basically like a very high quality Lululemon men's oriented brand, like think pants. Now we introduce shirts, like workout shirts. So mm -hmm. next time we go to Barry's, yeah, you can wear we'll your Jack Archer shirt. Yeah. So when you buy these brands and you mentioned looking at the data, like how are you guys looking at the data? Are you first, are you replacing the tech stack with your own tech stack? And then you have a team of people of data scientists or analysts that are going in or how does that process work? It's a mix right now. So we keep the businesses running on shop. But we introduce a lot of new tech. Like there's like a spreadsheet of twelve. Let's see, about twelve columns across and about eight rows deep of various. And is that things as doing. basic as like customer service and reviews, yes. subscriptions? Some, some of it's more advanced. Some, some of it's very basic. Some yeah. of it's not. Got it. Okay, cool. And I remember listening to Jack one time. He talked about how they pilot test a lot of the software that they build within Atomic with their network of brands. Is that something that you guys do with OpenStore as well? Not really. There are some innovative things that I want to do, and some of them are live in pilot. Some of them hopefully will get live in Q4 that brands haven't done maybe at all, certainly not the long tail version of the shop market yeah. that we will do from scratch. So for example, we're going to match long tail influencers with long tail SKUs. Right. So don't think like millions of dollars, millions of followers think like tens of thousands and giving every one of those influencers on any platform, Instagram, TikTok, SKUs that they can promote successfully to their audience and following. So that matchmaking exercise is something we're going to build in a proprietary, unique way. And how are you going to compensate them? It'll be some function of sales, mm -hmm. but um, the more important part is the matchmaking, the right. economics. Actually, there's some pretty standard ways to do that. 
Growing your direct-to-consumer business can be tough. Having out-of-date or inaccurate data makes it even harder. That's why I'm using Triple Whale. Their customer insights, attribution, and profit tracking means I can scale my Shopify stores to the moon. Get a walkthrough on how Triple Whale can help you scale your store. Use promo code SUPPLY15 to get 15% off when you sign up at triplewhale.com. Or you can DM me on Twitter and I'm going to fight for 20% off. I want to go back to open stores of business, I guess. How many stores have you guys purchased? You said your goal is one a week in Q4. It was a little slower in Q3. I think it's, I think it's 40 with about 20 in various versions of diligence. Got it. And then, um, you know, one of the things that Warren Buffett says is whenever he acquires a bus- business is he's like, we're never looking for synergies, nor do we ever find any synergies. Do you find synergies? I'd say rarely. There's in- I'd say there's insights that might be applied, but not really synergies. And if that's the case, then what is the goal? I once uh, had dinner with a Thrasio founder and he's like, our goal is to buy businesses at 5X EBITDA and go public at 25X EBITDA, which is great. Good luck with that. Fantastic. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, and that was a year ago when that may have been realistic and today probably is not. If you're like, hey, look, there are no synergies. So we bought a, a business at 4X EBITDA. Is the goal, hey, look, we can increase top line materially? Is the goal like, hey, we can do the uh, EBITDA expansion? What is the goal once you buy the business? Though? So let's say in the short term and medium term. Short term, the goal is to improve things. And so that might be top line growth. So for example, if they're capital constrained, we can invest more money in marketing, customer acquisition with a certain payback characteristic. Yeah. Number two is economies of scale. These people are paying off the shelf, off the rack kind of shipping costs. We clearly can negotiate better shipping costs and pass it on to consumers or or profit or both and probably improve the speed by placing you know sort of our distribution centers in the right place so that people get their goods faster. That's an example of top line growth. We can add new channels like influencer marketing that they wouldn't have done. None of our brands basically had their own app. We're going to have native apps for our brands. So there's benefits of native apps to the consumer. Obviously, there's benefits to the company. So all of these things are things that very small businesses wouldn't normally be able to invest in that we obviously can do. And so if you look at businesses that you purchased a year ago, like let's say you had closed on them by October 1, 2021, Walmart always provides this metric of what does same store sales look like a year later? You know, you've purchased probably 30 businesses over the past year. So I'm sure your revenue is going up. Is same store EBITDA, is same store revenue up from a year ago to today? Well, it's a really good question. So we actually closed our first business just over a year ago. We started the company in more like 16, 17 months ago, but the actual first transaction occurred in September last year. So there's not that many businesses. There's actually very few that are a year old. Truthfully, we screwed up pretty badly. The first, call it three to seven, brands we bought, meaning we didn't know what we were doing. Like in terms of operations being a massive sure. complicated, as you yeah. said, we didn't have an ops team. We didn't know what ops teams to build. We certainly didn't know how to productize it. We didn't even have an integration and absorption team, which was the biggest reason why we just didn't transfer things correctly. So obviously we built the ability to transfer things correctly. That, that integration team is running very smoothly. They're excellent. Number two, we built a demand forecasting team or tool, which allowed sure. us to avoid stockouts. Just you, you learn all of these things and you build. So since March of 2022, we've been building a pretty sophisticated operations team and it's getting increasingly sophisticated. We now have very world-class people in some of the functions and we're recruiting for others. So we're getting much, much better. That's actually how I measure the business is by cohort of when we closed a brand, yeah. how well are we doing? The first cohort looks pretty bad. The second cohort looks mediocre. The third cohort looks decent. Last cohort looks pretty good. I want this fourth quarter to look perfect. 
I really love talking to people like you who are so who are operating on the next level because it makes me it inspires me to be so much more ambitious. I, like you know, you're like we bought a few businesses and it didn't work out. I'd be like, I bought a few businesses and it didn't work out. I can't do this anymore. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and you're like, look, we just got to the next cohort and we're going to keep doing this until we figure it out. Send all those and businesses to us. About, we we'll take those businesses off your hand. <laughs> It makes me think about all the things that I've done where I'm like, I gave up because I just tried a little bit as opposed to continuing to be like, you know what, I'm going to be an expert at this and it's going to cost me $5 million or $10 million or $20 million. And at the end of this, I'll have a better understanding of how to run these businesses. You definitely have to pay tuition learning how to do things in a startup. Yeah. And you can't really do it top down perfectly overnight. You don't want to over-productize, over-engineer things. And to really learn how things actually work, then you want to build a product. So you want to do things kind of in a hack way, a little bit with human labor, and then productize (laughs) it based upon insights. Yeah. The Amazon, like the Thrasios of the world, it's easy to run those businesses because they're generally not doing as much new product development. They're sort of like, here are the products, we're running Amazon ads, and our tailwinds are actually just Amazon. Like Amazon grow, uh, growing, e-commerce growing, and like Amazon growing, and that's going to be the tailwind behind our back that's going to fuel revenue growth and EBITDA, EBITDA growth. Now, whether that holds true or not is unclear, but you know, your business is, you, someone's got to run Facebook ads. Someone's got to go into Klaviyo or some marketing platform and create an email. Someone's got to play with prices and do conversion rate optimization in a way that you can never do on Amazon. Generally, that is really, really mom and pop based or like, you know, for for the businesses that you're buying, moms and pops have been doing that. And often they've been doing it poorly. But do you have people creating emails? Do you have people running conversion rate optimization tests? Everything you just named, I'm laughing and smiling because we have a team that's doing all those things. So literally from integrating Clavio to running pricing testing, to running bundling testing, to lifting conversion by changing various things, we do all of that in a classic Silicon Valley way with engineers, designers, growth people measuring and then rolling it out. I have uh, currently, I think it's 46 engineers. I'd say half of them are working on projects that are related to all those topics. What's the learning that you realize? So you weren't in the e-commerce business business before, right? You worked on projects around it. What are some learnings that you learned like coming into OpenStore and realizing why have people never done it this way before? There's several. So I wasn't in payments before I started PayPal either. So I kind of like new projects. I didn't know much about real estate before I started Opendoor. Um, I did know a decent about, about recruiting when I got involved in LinkedIn. That, that was like kind of down the middle of things I'd been involved in. But so I sort of like things I don't know that much about. But a couple of epiphanies. One was these businesses have surprisingly large margins. I would not have guessed what their margins were, but they're significantly greater. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could talk about why and what that means. And, uh, but I would have been off by a meaningful amount if I had guessed before starting the company. Second learning is, I think, realistically, that is much harder on operations than probably I would have guessed, um, particularly around one or two acute specific parts are, are really challenging, but we're finally, I think, getting to an answer there. Third is that there are a lot of these businesses on Shopify, but most of them are very, very small. So there's, let's say, 1.7 million businesses, sub $10 million in revenue. But there, a lot of the 1.7 million is actually sub $100,000 in revenue. Mm-hmm. So just getting escape velocity to 500K to 10 million is an achievement. It's really a significant accomplishment for the founder. So you mentioned earlier that for something like demand forecasting, you guys built your own apps. And I know... You uh, led the round into Taito as well, the yep. analytics platform. 
Is a part of OpenStore's goal to build software and then eventually release that to the world too? Is that a, a part of the business that you want to build? I don't know. I wouldn't say never, but in the short term, I think we have two key goals. One is acquire more and more brands successfully, faster, absorb them perfectly, run them uh, flawlessly, then stitch them all together from a consumer perspective so that we have effectively a decentralized department store where people discover goods at scale that they didn't know they needed. So we're not in the business of a utilitarian search like, you know, I want diapers and diapers. I'm going to go, you know, find that. There's somebody else, at least one other company that does that pretty well. What we want is when you don't know what you want and you get inspired, we want the best SKUs for that. And that's the reason why people still shop in the real world, in my opinion, why like roughly e-commerce in the United States is like call it 12% and kind of flatlining there is that the serendipitous discovery of goods accounts for a majority of purchases in the United States. So we want to replicate the experience of going to like a shopping mall, Mm -hmm. like which is what I used to do, you know, for fun in high school. And where you find things that, you know, you wanted, but you're inspired. And that's, that's what we're trying to create. So that's step two. So a marketplace. Shipping other soft, yeah, marketplace means different things to different people, but effectively, yes. And then shipping software for other people is pretty far off that trajectory. And those things are hard enough, as we talked about. If we get those two things done, I'll be very, very happy in the next yeah. two years. Awesome. Let me uh, take a quick uh, segue into the stores that you guys own. You know, you mentioned that you're getting better in terms of a cohort basis. How much of the store's revenue is dependent on Facebook ads? So for instance, if I turn off all Facebook ads to all of your stores, how much of revenue go down by? 50% or 100%? Uh, probably 70. So when we look at pricing, typically 70% or so, maybe a little bit more of the customers that they've acquired are yeah. direct from Instagram. And direct that's actively Instagram. running today? Yeah, that's typically what, like if you look at the last three months yeah. for any of the brands we acquire, and there's very few exceptions. Do you think about other channels of growth outside of Facebook? We do. And that's one of the benefits we can uh, you know, provide in terms of top line growth is we can afford to invest in and pioneer some level of traction in different channels and layer those on. Yeah. Think of, as, a, as I mentioned, apps. Native apps allow you to send push notifications. It's more retention than customer acquisition. Sure. But you could also theoretically add features into those apps that would lead to customer acquisition too. Are you building your own apps or using a company like Tapcart to do we it? We started with like Tap to like test yeah. just to yeah. see how it would perform. Yeah. But we're building our own apps and we've shipped some, but we'll be building everything uniquely proprietary for open store. Have any of the brands that you've purchased, like, you know, I was going to say, have they grown by 10x, but you've only been doing this for a year. Have any of them grown 5x since you bought them? Uh, not 5x. And that's partially not our goal. So I, we are not, although yeah. my day job is to be a venture capitalist. <laughs> uh, like I'm a VC and I am looking for the yeah. proverbial 10x growth, you know, ideally right after yeah. I invest, yeah, which yeah. almost never happens. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> the 10x growth over some, you know, compressed period of time would be yeah. wonderful. Our business at OpenStore is not predicated on finding these outliers and like yeah. having a thousand X growth offset, like, right. you know, mediocre yeah. performance. This is not a power law business that we're trying to create. I do that the other days of my week. Half of my days a week, you know, I'm running OpenStore and we want to be accurate and grow everything consistently. Yeah. And then the other days of the week, I want to find power law outcomes. Have any of the businesses that you purchased been shut down? Have you guys been like, hey, we bought this I think business there's, and it turns out- I think there's too. one. And how much do you invest into a business before you decide, let's either not consistently invest new money into this business and just let it run, or let's shut it down? Uh, the shut it down is like a very, would be a 
very rare case. It would be like there's something fundamentally wrong. Like the product doesn't work as described. Like the chargebacks are insane. Returns are too high. Something like a little bit off, not just like it's not growing. Yeah. We've maintained all the other brands and we invest in all the other brands. So we're not looking to, you know, reprioritize or anything like that. But if we did see that we couldn't deliver an awesome customer experience, we might rethink a specific brand. Sure. Okay, I want to pivot to some financial stuff at this point, because uh, I know we're uh, going to run out of time pretty soon. One is, if you had to guess, what would be the average multiple paid on an EBITDA or revenue basis for the business, for the 50 businesses you guys have purchased? So we don't actually use that as the formula, but I can tell you the answer is about two. 2x EBITDA yeah. or 2x revenue? 2x EBITDA. 2x EBITDA. Okay, gotcha. And have those multiples changed uh, for, from a year ago, or they're pretty similar? They went down, then a little bit up. So they were a little bit higher okay, um, about a year ago, then they went down, and then they're a little bit higher right now. But I actually don't calculate. I only calculate this you, in hindsight. Yeah. So yeah. Out of, more out of curiosity yeah. than actually that's not what our yeah. model is predicated on. Mm-hmm. I mean, 2, 2x EBITDA is amazing. How do you finance the purchases? I, I know you guys have raised something like $140 million. I think you uh, closed another round, nearly a billion dollar valuation uh, several weeks ago. It, are you guys uh, using equity, debt, or a combination of both? We use a combination. So we raised about $155 million in total across multiple rounds. Yeah. We do finance using a combination of equity and debt. Hopefully over time, more and more debt, less and less equity. And how much, like, what is it 50-50 equity debt? Is it more equity, you know, uh, people who buy uh, homes from open door, I bet are doing 80-20 because that's pretty classic when it comes to real estate. I think what that's where we want to be. Uh, historically, we used a lot of equity, partially to just prove that we could do this. So it's easier to get yeah. debt once you prove operating, you know, track records and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. So debt people are pretty conservative by definition versus equity people who are taking risk. So you kind of need to use a lot of equity up front. But then we recently... We had an equity a debt line, and we recently upgraded the debt line. So we'll be using more and more debt now prospectively. Do you use fixed or floating rate debt? The first debt facility was probably fixed, but I don't even remember because it was done before you had to worry yeah. about these things. The second one definitely floats. They usually typically float off LIBOR, so it definitely floats. Okay, I'm going to ask you some more. We're going to get into some more general questions from e-commerce. What are some businesses that you guys don't own that you really admire in the e-commerce space? I'm not really sure because I don't have access to their financials. So if they've pitched me, I may have an opinion, but that's a very small set. So like, you know, companies I love and I'm involved in, like think Fair, which is an e-commerce marketplace connecting long-tail brands and long-tail retailers. Phenomenal business, phenomenal team. You know, I've been an investor since 2015 when they started the company. So that's a unique and very compelling value proposition. If I'm not really sitting in a room and hearing about the economics, the CAC, the payback period and stuff like that, it's really hard to evaluate from afar. So then my only prism is products I like. E-commerce products I buy, mm-hmm. and I can yeah, give you, Okay, what are some products? Yeah, that you like? yeah. So, like, for yeah, example, give us two products that you like. I've discovered on Instagram. Now, I'm like, you know, shop Instagram all the time. Uh, I have a custom pillow that I discovered that it's actually pretty good. I have I, this new ten thousand um, brand uh, athletic wear. Like, um, it's actually really good. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah. I wear, I wear those. That's my shirt, actually. I love ten thousand. Yeah, actually, the, I think the guy, uh, the guy, you know, you, I know you worked at SNC. The guy who started ten thousand also worked at Sullivan and Cromwell. Really, I didn't know that. Oh, that's yeah. cool. That's very cool. Yeah, I'll, have to, I'll have to look him up. 
yeah, not that many people escape SNC and become business people. Uh, so that alone <laughs> yeah, is an accomplishment. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. yeah, that's right. Uh, is the market? Let me ask you another question: Is the market treating e-commerce fairly based on where Shop is? You know, Altbirds IPO'd at four billion is now four hundred million. Hims was, I think, two billion now under a billion. Shop was, you know, one hundred fifty billion now thirty or forty billion. Is the market? Valuing uh, these businesses appropriately or incorrectly, in your opinion? Most e-commerce businesses, I would say, is evaluating correctly. I think shop is potentially undervalued in some ways. I think partially, I think they had, were traded a premium like many financial services companies where a lot yeah. of their revenue growth had been in embedded finance. And as embedded finance became less cool and attractive, it's affected their market cap. I don't totally understand why they're, you know, actually down like 80%. Like, I'm not exactly yeah. sure why. I think shop has a, you know, very high potential future. But I do think a direct-to-consumer brand, best case is you're looking at 1x revenue. D- direct-to-consumer brands should be valued at about 1x revenue. That's like best case. Yeah. And you you mentioned earlier that you said you were surprised that the margins in e-commerce were as high as they were. What are the EBITDA margins that you're finding, and what did you think that they would be when you were looking? So let, let's start with like gross margin kind of level. Sure, easily fifty to sixty percent. Yeah, yeah, but that's well, that's higher in, than I would have guessed, okay. um, especially for like less optimized businesses in many ways, where the cost structure doesn't reflect economies of scale. Secondly, contribution margin, which is what I really care about is all over the map. Depends on how effective their ad units are, really. Mm-hmm. And we do see some brands we look at have extraordinary performance on Instagram. Click-through rates, two, three, four times normal. Yeah. And so, therefore, their contribution margin may look very attractive, actually. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Um, okay, so when you said uh, you thought the margins were better than you expected, it was a really gross margin you were talking about. Gross now. margin was much higher given yeah, yeah. Um, my amateur impression of the market for these products. On that, where where do you cut most of the fat? Like when you buy a business, where's the fat sitting that you cut and you're able to increase the contribution Well, I would margin? say shipping, definitely. Okay. And then sometimes we're dialing up marketing spend. I'd say 30% of the time, the founder is under-investing in customer acquisition. And then actually about 50% are pretty much triangulating right about where they should be on a CAC payback basis. And then about 20, 30% might be paying too much. And so yep. they might dial back their marketing. Yep. And with Open Store and the future of the business, what's the goal? Is it an IPO? Well, yeah, we'd like to be an independent public company. That, And the reason for that is, first of all, we do use capital, like whether it's debt yeah. or equity or the combination. Sure. So the, the more capital access to capital under better terms, that typically is correlated with the public company. So that's one reason. Second reason is we want to build an iconic company that persists. And mm-hmm. basically, once you build a public company, the likelihood that you're a 30, 40, 50, 60 year company goes up dramatically. And so since we want to put a stake in the ground, we want to build something that has permanent value, about the only real way to do that is a public company. All right, Moise, any last questions before we get into the lightning round? Uh, no, we've got five minutes left. Let's get okay. the lightning right. Fire away. Keith, we've got the lightning round. Quick answers, whatever's on your mind. All right, first one, double floor? No, never. <laughs> only when I'm sick or, Only if I'm sick or injured. Do you have any mentors uh, that you've looked up to? Do you have any mentors today or are you the mentor today? I wish. Um, I would love to find one. What would you look for? Someone who would challenge me. Um, the most um, in different dimensions. I mean, they could be mentors in different fields or whatever, but um, challenge uh, yeah. is the best and most important way to grow. I did learn the most over my career from Peter Thiel. Right. Like most of my views about how to build companies, how to value companies, how to invest in companies 
are derivative in one way or the other from a lot of Peter's views. They've been often remixed. So I have my own views that he actually might not agree with, but the foundation, it's like a really good song. The foundation is really something he said once. Got it. How do you manage all the businesses you're running at the same time? Great question. Fortunately, I have a wonderful friend who's doing it right now extremely well. And the key is to hire deputy key deputies for him, like five or six key deputies. We have a few in place and we need one or two more. And are those like general managers? No, they're functional experts. So like, for example, we have someone running fulfillment who's world-class. Got it. Okay. Within the teams. We're looking for someone on the customer acquisition side, maybe two people actually there. Is there one level higher though, where you have these deputies across open door and uh, open store and- Founders Probably fund. not, although I'm willing to experiment and try it and just see how it compares. Okay. What business do you spend the most time on today? Or like these days, I should say. Oh, open store by a lot. So fortunately, I have an EA and a chief of staff and they combine to measure my calendar and audit my calendar, like I recommend for most executives. And um, in Q1 of last year, it was 33% open store and two thirds everything else I do. So boards, one-on-ones with CEOs, new pitches, founders, fun stuff. Q2 is actually 50-50. And when we do the math on uh, Q3, I suspect it's going to go up from 50-50. And that doesn't even include weekend times, which are mostly open store. Other than the businesses you're an investor in, what business is undervalued in your opinion? Well, I don't think there's any tech company that's really undervalued right now. I still think there's more harmonization and that valuations are still too high. So I suspect- the Even market- Facebook? Even oh, Facebook? Yeah. You don't think Facebook- uh, Facebook's massively overvalued. They have no ability. This metaverse thing is silly and ridiculous. They have no ability to do tech innovation. They have the wrong team, wrong culture, probably wrong CEO for that. And so fundamentally, Facebook's inevitably going to run into a, a hard wall. Um, Can't they just be AOL? Like, you know, $350 billion valuation, $50 billion in cash. You're talking about $300. Uh, be AOL dial-up. Just go like this and that'll be, yep. you know. I, I, Facebook has to go that way partially regulatory reasons so they can't acquire their way out of the problem, which would be a very, in fact, that actually is Mark's strength. Like Instagram was a brilliant acquisition. It was brilliant at the time and it was brilliant today, but those moves aren't going to be available in the next few years. And they've never been an innovative company. They haven't shipped an innovative product successfully since the wall. And you you might remember back from (laughs) your tiny code days and my slide days. So the ability of the culture there and the team there to innovate across technology is not is not going to happen. And they can't recruit because of the political perceptions of the company. So yeah, I'd be very dubious about the future of Facebook. Okay, final question. Uh, when someone's pitching you, what gets you excited about the business? You mentioned earlier that you think 50% of your friends should basically be laughing at you. What are the metrics? You're looking at talent. You're like, you know, one of the interesting things that I, I once met Jack uh, from Atomic and he's like, we don't invest in people. We actually invest in the idea. Um, yeah, he's like, the we invest in the business literally itself. Atomic yeah, he is, is the, the opposite. It's literally the opposite yeah. of my strategy. What gets you excited here, I guess? Is it just the people? Are you sort of like, hey, this product isn't going to matter as much? Well, I do like impact. So I do filter just because I have a scarce amount of time in my life all things being equal, something that will positively move society forward is something I'm more interested in and just allocating my own time and energies to. But from a pure investor, qua investor standpoint, it's finding some undiscovered talent that I think has a non-zero probability of changing the world and giving them advice, money, some of their fuel that enables them to increase the probabilities of success. That's the most invigorating thing on the planet. 
Awesome. You know, what's really, uh, I appreciate that answer. That's a great answer. Um, I guess from a KPI perspective, the one thing I've been surprised about is listening to this conversation and preparing for this interview. I've heard you talk a lot more about gross margin and contribution margin than EBITDA than I expected. I, I would have expected at some point you would have been like, EBITDA is what we look at. And you said you mentioned you buy businesses on 2X. But when you looked at, when you talked about e-commerce, you're like, gross margin is higher than I expected. Contribution margin is all over the place, but not net, uh, not EBITDA, which generally I found to be in these small businesses to be in the you know 10 to 20 percent range it doesn't vary that much in a, uh you know from an EBITDA perspective but your your KPIs have generally been gross and contribution based on this conversation and a conversation on CNBC I saw a while yeah but there's two two reasons for that so one is being a venture investor by definition there's no reason to look at EBITDA you're never going to yeah. invest in an EBITDA positive business as a seed or series A investor maybe not even yeah. series B so it's kind of irrelevant like and so you have yeah. to develop other ways of evaluating a business so it's kind of silly like there's no such yeah. thing as a venture investment with a positive EBITDA the, it, like eBay might have had it like in sure. the last 50 years maybe the only business ever so like it's just like a ridiculous concept for VCs. Number two is I think it's actually fundamentally unsound to look at a business that way. The reason why is if you understand gross margin, particularly contribution dollars, you understand the levers. Like the bottom line EBITDA doesn't tell you anything about what levers to pull. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the more intermediate metrics tell you what you can do differently. And that's the goal. If I was an executive, the goal is to improve the company. So I need to be able to have KPIs that tell me where to look, what levers might I toggle that would change the outcome. Looking at some synthesized bottom line number it doesn't help you tell it doesn't help you determine anything. And the last thing is Peter has this philosophy it's a derived from him, which is basically once a company starts increasing EBITDA, it means they have no growth and no innovation left. It's like the last refuge for founders and CEOs. <laughs> so the last thing I want to see is increasing EBITDA until yeah. that business is like way into its future. So anyway, for all those reasons combined, that I'm not particularly interested in like EBITDA qua EBITDA. Got it. Keith, what do you want to plug? For everybody listening in the e-commerce, DTC, well, well, CPG obviously, world. if you run a shop store and you don't want to do this for the next 40 years of your life, We'd love to look at your data, give you an offer in 24 hours and make your life easy. And what does that process look like? You just go to openstore.com? Go to openstore.com and all you really have to do is connect your shop. Um, we will ask you some financial metrics that you know shop doesn't track, but there's different ways of doing that. You can provide an, uh, a P&L, you can screenshot a P&L, you can answer a little quiz. That's enough to get you an offer. I think Anything it's open dot store, by the way. It's open yes, dot store. Op- open sorry, dot store. it is open dot store. Yeah. yeah. But if you just email me, Keith at Founders Fund, I'll make sure you get an offer. Boom. Your <laughs> inbox is about to be flooded. That's all right. <laughs> all right. Anything well, thank else you very us? much for this, Keith. This was amazing. Cool. Uh, really interesting to hear about your perspective on e-commerce, mainly because I, I think it's a very different business than you've invested in the past where like, you know, these are smaller businesses that you're acquiring a very different business model where you're basically opening up a Blackstone, but for very small mom and pop shops. And uh, interesting to see that. And also like so refreshing uh, in terms of ambition. Like I remember the time we had lunch, I was working at Simpson Thatcher. I had no idea what the, what the oh, yeah. was like. Oh yeah, I remember. Yes. I was like a year or two into Simpson and I was like, I have no idea what to think about. Listening to you here, I, I feel like everything I'm doing is not ambitious enough. And it really inspires me to go think all the businesses I'm running are looking at EBITDA on a quarterly basis, or like, you know, I'm an owner and are looking at EBITDA on a quarterly basis. And I'm like, why aren't you fucking increasing this? And now I'm like, why don't we increase top line right now? And we'll worry about EBITDA five years from now. Cool. Great. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Keith. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you very much. Pleasure. 
Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time to cut through the noise in CPG, retail, and e-commerce. And if you enjoyed this episode, then why not share it with a friend? And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss the next one. 